Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The single metric that I use to say, am I doing well? I use a very simple metric. If you take the enterprise value and you multiply it by the cost of borrowing money, your free cash flow must be higher than that product. When I'm doing better than that metric, then I know that I have a future. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. If you've ever wanted to improve your business skills or become a better business leader, then you are in the right place. This episode is for you. In this episode, we discuss how engineering leaders can adopt a GM mindset, and we get into all sorts of strategies for building a resilient business with Sandeep Chenakeshu. Sandeep is COO of Under Inc. and is the former CTO of Sony Ericsson and president of BlackBerry. This conversation is all about building your business skills and instincts. Sandeep reveals some of the key structural elements of successful businesses, and we cover methods to improve your business's financial fitness and cash flow, how to overcome operational inefficiencies, and tons of other savvy business management insights. Sandeep has spent 34 years in three industries and led teams across the globe that pioneered amazing products in wireless. We're talking 2G, 3G, 4G mobile phones, Bluetooth, mobile satellite technology, semiconductors for consumer, automotive, and medical electronics and safety-critical software for cars, medical equipment, nuclear power plants, high-speed rail, and industrial robots. Along the way, he transformed companies to grow profitably in a sustained manner using the principles outlined in his book, Your Company is Your Castle. He's a fellow of the IEEE and a named inventor on 180 issued patents. Enjoy our conversation with Sandeep Chenakeshu. To introduce our conversation, you and I, we've talked about some of the topics that we wanna, we wanna live in in our conversation around building a resilient business. And I know we're gonna talk about some of the strategies and the frameworks that you've built throughout your career as a senior operator, engineering leader, and GM. And so to set some context for folks in our community, you've had some incredible tech transformation experiences throughout your career. And I was hoping that you could introduce us to a few of those major moments and milestones in your career. Can you help introduce us to some of the big moments as your time as an engineering leader and an operator? I can probably think of three very interesting experiences. In a coming straight out of college, I got a very good job at GE Corporate Research. I had done my PhD. I joined a small team of six people who were actually trying to build a digital telephone, wireless telephone, as well as a base station that could talk to it. Only six people, a very small team. And we actually built it in a year. Uh, now, of course, it didn't have the full functionality and it was not commercial, but we had to demonstrate the entire concept of having a digital wireless product just before America was introducing its first commercial wireless digital products. 
And what was interesting is I had to basically move away from theoretical equations and simulations to actually implementing something that could be coded up in hardware and actually worked in the field. And it worked amazingly well. Basically, six of us had to think of everything that could go wrong. And it completely changes your mindset, you know, when you do something like that. The second uh, major transformation was actually in a both in a technical and a business role in uh, 2003. We had just formed a joint venture a little earlier in 2001 with Ericsson and Sony. And our revenue had fallen dramatically from when we started. We were trying to compete and do something that are the biggest player in the market, Nokia, was doing. But they had scale, they had better marketing, and they had the cost structure as well as a great supply chain to build cheap phones. And so we couldn't compete. So my boss had asked me to think about what would make us different. And we came up as a team that we would build the precursor to the smartphone, we would build multimedia phones. But none of the chipsets and software in that period could actually do any of this. They couldn't play music. They couldn't stream video. They couldn't play games. They didn't have the right security. They couldn't have color displays. And we were thinking about how do we change the way customers use phones and to architect and build the chips and software to do that. That was a major, major thing. It was transformation in thinking. And to actually do that at some reasonable price point. Fast forward a few years, I moved into automotive software which is completely different. I thought, you know, hey, mobile phone software is pretty cool. I've done a lot of it. Automotive software is a completely different level of quality. (laughs) And learning about the processes that went into building software that was that high quality was another major, major experience. There are other fabulous experiences I've had. A few of us actually helped design a a mobile satellite system and the air interface for that, which is functional all over Southeast Asia, providing maritime service. And my boss one day came to me after lunch with a napkin and said, hey, invent a 10-meter link. It said, Sandeep invented a 10-meter link. I was not the main inventor. My brilliant colleagues, Jaap Hartson, Sven Martison, and a whole bunch of others in the team contributed, but that's called Bluetooth today. So there's been a fabulous array of things that I've been privileged to be part of. I can't take credit for much. I've got, I've got great teams. They probably have made me successful, and that's what I recount. So in so many incredible stories that you just scratched the surface and teased us a, a little bit. And I think, you know, we're, we're going to be diving into about building a resilient business and already previewing some of the different mental models, perspectives, and different strategies that you can employ. Like when you're talking about the GE corporate research, six people building a completely revolutionary technology and having to be responsible for thinking through all the things that go wrong and can already start to be introduced to your thought process there and what you're sharing about competing after a moment of how to recapture revenue and thinking about the the competitive landscape and how to be different, already sort of teasing some of the elements here. One thing I wanted to bring up, you had different strategic roles. Like you were both an engineering leader at different points and at other points you functionally served as a, as a general manager. And you and I were chatting earlier and you'd mentioned that there there is no difference between an engineering leader and a GM. And so I was wondering if you could share, because a lot of people in our community who would hear that, who identify as engineering leaders would be like, well, my role is like, this is my lane. Like, I don't think I am a, a general manager. So I was wondering if you could share, what did you mean by that and introduce us? to to why? Yeah, you know, for a long time, I searched uh, for a definition of who is a manager and who is a leader. You know, the best definition I got was from a book by Joel Arthur Barker. It's on paradigm shifts and brilliant book. In that book, 
says a manager is one who manages within a paradigm and a leader manages between paradigms. And to be an engineering leader or a general manager in the leadership capacity, it's the same if you have the ability to manage between paradigms. And when you're managing between paradigms, it means you can create a paradigm shift. And if that shift is sufficiently large, it's a large chasm to cross, you can't do it yourself. You have to enlist the support of your troops. How do you do that? Because they don't know if your vision is right. They were probably listening also to a bunch of skeptics who are saying, okay, this guy is wrong. How do you inspire the confidence? And you can't just use words. You have to lay out a path and you have to systematically think through things. So to tie into my earlier example, whether it was building that digital telephone system or it was transforming what we did to bring in revenue, the thinking is rather similar. You've got to look at the different aspects that will make the goal successful and coordinate that. That's what an engineering manager does when launching a new product. A general manager does the same when it comes to their profit and loss statement. So they're very similar characteristics. Yes, the domains are different. But if you have the basic tenets and the framework, you can translate that to very different fields. And I personally started off as this engineer. I've used it in mobile phones, mobile satellite phones. I've used it in automotive software, industrial robots. I've used it in cybersecurity. I've used it in sensor design. I've used it widely across a very, very large set of industries and technologies, and they just scale. I'm really excited to dive into some of the elements of the framework and strategies that have helped you there. Um, I wanted to ask one more question about how you develop the passion for applying this framework. In, in kind of reading and preparing, I noticed that you had shared, you've kind of found yourself in a situation volunteering to fix quote-unquote broken companies and sort of this, this passion for some of these big, massive turnarounds and transformations for businesses. How did you become passionate about some of those larger transformations or turnarounds with some of the, these different companies? Or I guess, how did you become passionate or how did you find yourself in these different situations? No, actually, the, the beginnings uh, started with failure. My first major job before I was 40 years old with the profit and loss responsibility was a general manager of a phone division. And we grew successfully at 50% a year in revenue for two years. And the third year, we got extremely cocky and arrogance got into our system. And we projected revenues that would never materialize based on the hubris of our success. And we made a huge number of mistakes. When you get arrogant, you make a lot of mistakes. And we failed. I actually predicted we would lose over half a billion dollars. And what was interesting is that I never spoke up at the management meetings fully knowing that I was on the wrong path. Little did I know that my voice was respected. I was trying to fit into the pack. Big failing on my part. So at the end of this, yes, true enough, we came within 2% of my prediction of failing. We lost a lot of money. So I went to my boss, you know, he told me, he said, look, we know you, your heart's in the right place. We don't need to remove you. I said, no, I want to step down for my job because I know how to clean up this mess. And I actually did that for a year and I cleaned up the mess. They never forgot what I did. And they promoted me after that to being the chief technical officer of the company, which was the most prestigious position at that time. A few years later, I wanted to get back into building a business. All this time, I was thinking, why did I fail? What were the things I did wrong? Yes, it was part of my immaturity, 
It was part of my lack of business knowledge, even though I had a business diploma. So I basically started formulating a framework. And when I got an opportunity, a tough opportunity to actually move to a foreign country and actually work on a business that was struggling, this is a perfect opportunity to implement my framework and say, can I not make the same mistakes I made before? And can I actually succeed? And just before I got the job, I asked the chief operating officer with mother company. I told him, I jokingly, I said, you're giving me this job, but you know, just a few years ago, I lost a lot of money. I remember what he said so clearly. He told me, he said, Sandy, I want you to know that you've had a very expensive education that <laughs> we invested in, and we don't want to lose that investment. <laughs> so that's how I got my job. Oh my gosh, what, a, what an incredibly alleviating response to just that interaction. I, I love that. So you mentioned you had this expensive education and it helped you formulate this framework that you've been able to apply across a number of really powerful contexts. I think it's about time we, we dive into some of, the, some of the methods that you've relied on in this quest to build a resilient business. And so I was wondering, could you maybe introduce us to some of the, the high level areas or some of the structural elements that, that help create these strong businesses or even, I guess, introduce us to the theme of your book in the context there too? The analogy or the extended metaphor of comparing a castle to a business. I came up with that after a sufficient amount of thought, aided by several people who made good suggestions. Had to credit them for actually putting me on the right track. And I did a lot of research on castles. And I found that castles that have withstood 500 years or several hundred years, uh, how have they actually withstood nature's elements? Hail, the sun, dust storms, snow, etc. And how have they withstood invaders? And there were elements of the castle that were built to make it strong. Like you had to have an unassailable position so that it's difficult for people to actually attack the castle. The second is to have a solid foundation because if the foundation was weak, the walls would crumble. Having a perimeter wall or a curtain wall, as they call it, to protect the castle. That curtain wall is the structural element that connects the towers, which housed guards that protected the wall itself. So people couldn't scale it or tunnel under it. And then there was a central building called the keep, which housed the nobility, the guards, some, some of the soldiers, the granary, the weaponry, etc. And then there was, you know, the roof on, to which protected them against the elements and enemy projectiles. Similarly, in a company, the unassailable position is the business model. The foundation is the ability for you to generate cash because without cash, you cannot build anything on top of it. So it's akin to the foundation and how strong it is. The stronger your cash flow, the more you can do with it. The perimeter wall or the curtain wall is your strategy. It encompasses the entire company. The protective towers, which are connected to the strategy, are your product creation, product delivery, your sales channels, and your ability to execute. And at the center is building called the key, but that is the culture of the company. Because if the culture fails, the company fails. And it doesn't matter if the perimeter wall is standing. If the keep fell, the castle fell. And on top of the, the roof, the analogy of the roof is your stakeholders. They protect you. Your stakeholders are your investors, your employees, and your customers. Investors give you money to do good things. Customers buy products and generate money so that you can continue to do good things. And without employees, you cannot do good things. So that's the analogy that I try to do. And this is my framework. These eight elements are the framework which I use to build any business. 
So in th- thinking about folks in our in our community, the more senior somebody becomes in the engineering leadership journey, like the larger their PNL is or the more extensive their product scope is. And one of the areas where a lot of folks in our community have shared that are kind of gaps are the ability to communicate with the business or in some sense, like to understand the strategic role of financial fitness. I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about you're, you're talking about generating cash as like this important strategic element. Can you share a little bit more about the financial fitness element and talk a little bit more about the strategic role that that plays in building a resilient business. There's an interesting statistic that talks about companies that have failed. You know, two-thirds of all companies started fail within 10 years. And 82% of companies typically fail because they run out of cash. So cash is very similar to the blood in the human body. Blood flow takes oxygen to all your vital organs. Similarly, if you don't have cash flow in a company, you can't take that oxygen for survival and growth in your company. The simplest thing is to take a regular profit and loss statement and say, okay, the top of the line is revenue. How do you grow your revenue? And I call it three C's. You can read that in the book. Basically, it's coverage of your products in the market, the competitiveness and conversion. How are you able to convert each opportunity into revenue? The second aspect is cost of goods sold. Okay, it could be cost of services sold because you could have a physical product, you could have a service, whatever. How do you optimize that? Because revenue minus cost of goods sold is gross margin. That's what you're left with in the company to fund expenses. And then what do you do to improve that gross margin? The next thing is operating expenses. And how do you optimize? How do you design your organization to be efficient and resourceful and productive to optimize your operating expenses. I talk about that in the book and some techniques to do that. The next expense is capital expenses. You have to buy equipment, whether it's to test a product or it's to manufacture a product. How can you be prudent about that? And other ways, what are the ways in which you can trade off make versus buy solution decisions? The next thing that you have to worry about is you might have taken money such as debt and you may have huge liabilities. How do you manage those? Each, and then there's another thing that I, I worry about. It's your working capital. And working capital is a pot of cash that you need every day for day-to-day operations. The more you use, the more, you, more money you need. How do you optimize that? And I use a metric called cash conversion cycle. But I won't go into all of that now. So each of these elements, basically, if you optimize, you invariably optimize your cash flow. And the single metric that I use to say, am I doing well? I use something very simple. I look at the enterprise value of my company. That's the value that the investors, that's the value they assign to the company. So I say, if you take the enterprise value and you multiply it by the cost of borrowing money, your free cash flow must be higher than that product. And the simple example I give is if you borrowed $1,000 from a bank and they had a 5% interest rate, you would have to pay that bank $50 every year to pay, repay the interest. So the $1,000 is like the enterprise value. The interest rate is like the cost of capital. Your free cash flow that you generate in whatever business must be higher than that product, which is the interest that you're paying. Otherwise, you cannot service the debt that you borrowed. And so I use that as a very good metric to optimize my cash. And when I'm doing better than that metric, then I know that I have a future. 
as you were walking through some of the key things to focus on, it became so clear from uh, thinking about my role as an engineering leader. If I choose to focus, say, on coverage or conversion and how that immediately, if I'm thinking about in the context of a product that I'm building or or, or a feature that's being built, how that contributes to the overall cash flow of an organization. And even then, like I think right now, a lot of folks are sort of in this optimizing for efficiency and trying to minimize cost of goods sold and increasing margins that way with a lot of kind of the challenging economic environments that people are in. And so immediately I can start to see how, how these can really specifically direct me in thinking about the context of the business, what's important for the business right now, and then what can I do within my product or my, my feature set to help optimize for some of those different elements. I was wondering if you could help maybe introduce us to a story around when you were, were launching a different product, how you use some of these to, to optimize for cash flow or, or use sort of this golden rule of, of free cash flow as a decision-making element when you were looking at different features, products, or releasing something something new. Is there a story or example that can help show the, the power of the decision-making here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, early on when I was an engineering manager or even an engineer, I really didn't know how I could even impact the profit and loss. Early on in my career, when we were building forms, a very bright engineer came to me and said, hey, you know, we take three printed circuit boards and we stack them one on top of the other and we drill holes on the periphery because that printed circuit board goes into a chassis and we screw it in through these holes. And he said, hey, you know what? If we put four printed circuit boards, we stack them, we will get a 33% improvement in efficiency. We can save a lot of money. We save about 15 cents per board. But in order to do that, you have to make the drill hole a little bigger because you need a little wider drill bit to drill through a thicker stacker. And, you know, that little change, when I, of course, talked to the engineers, they said, no problem, you can do that. doesn't affect the integrity of the product. And that clever idea saved me over $2 million. And I said, wow, that's an example of value-based engineering where you do some investment to actually get a bigger saving. A little, a few years later, I was working in a software company and we, every software release was unique. And we were struggling as engineers to basically test every release. And then the architect came and said, you know what, we should make this much more like a Lego model, build little modules that are reusable, okay, across. And then we could take this reusable library of modules and build any combination we want for each customer. But it required six months to one year of additional investment to modularize things. But when we did, we got enormous savings and operating expense because we were not doing unique development every time. So it started basically allowing me to think, okay, if we did all these things, there are ways, clever ways in which the engineering departments can actually contribute to the profit and loss by asking questions. And a third example is I was in a company where our gross margin was rather low for a semiconductor company. We were in the low 30s percent and most companies who were doing similar things were about 50%. So we decided that we are going to do something about it and we are going to increase our gross margin by 18% to 20%. And in 18 months, we did that. We had three teams, we set them up and we gave them the problem and said, hey, you know what? This is a nice team building exercise. Go figure out how to solve this problem. And true enough, you know, when we came back, all three teams had exactly the same solution because we were building our products in different factories. They had very different yield. So it was all over the place. We were shipping products from one factory to another, lots of shipping costs. They said, no, let's pick best of class among these various factories and concentrate the product 
along that optimal chain. And we basically got a major improvement. And then, of course, one thing led to another, and we started figuring out that operational inefficiencies that we had in engineering and operations was booked in a bucket that nobody owned. Okay, they were just called operational adjustments. And, you know, in a $2 billion business, it was 2 or 3%. And that's a lot of money. Yeah. So by just focusing on that little bucket, <laughs> we were able to save a massive amount. And so there's a lot of things engineering leaders can do to help the profit and loss. And because I lived through engineering and operations and then became a GM, I was able to leverage all of those advantages and things that I saw, which helped me basically in my GM job. So I believe that engineering organizations can play a pivotal role if they are asked to do these things. I almost immediately see the competitive advantage for a leader to be able to specifically attribute what the engineering project that they're working on and then the cash flow element that it impacts. Like this project reduces our cost of goods sold or this OPEX investment here like improves this. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Thinking about somebody maybe who's like maybe more director level of engineering, would you recommend their, like when you're looking at like road mapping or prioritizing which project to do to categorize like where this impacts the cash flow of an organization? Like, is that a helpful practice? I was, cause I was thinking like, oh, if you label this and kind of mark what investment this supports, is that a good practice that you might recommend? Or do you have a, another one that maybe is more helpful? Yeah, in the book, I talk about five ways in which you go about doing this. So what mm -hmm. I like to do is for every product, I kind of identify who can impact cost. Of course, you can't do, you can't impact cost by trading quality. That's just not good because it'll come back to bite you in other ways and it'll probably be more expensive. So you make cost a constraint. It's usually never a constraint initially. <laughs> you got to make it a constraint. And you tell them, hey, you're a cost control center. You got to think about this. And then you talk about the design team and say, guys, when you're thinking about design, think about simple things. Don't just think about the design aspect. Think even about service and repair. Because if you don't design, it's service and repair. Like if you have a case that's you know, ultrasonically welded, it's plastic. Maybe you have to crack open the case when you have to repair it, which means you have to throw away the case. Is that a smart idea? You save a little money initially by doing this, but is it smart for repair? So think of all of these things when you're early on. So each cost control, then you have purchasing and you have manufacturing. So each cost control center, you tell them to come up with a roadmap of ideas to basically think about cost and efficiency. You meet every month and say, what progress have we made? What can we implement now? What can we implement a year from now, whatever, right? And that regular cadence is very good. And the other thing I try to do is I try to reward people who come up with the good ideas. Cost control should be celebrated just as much as a patent or a product win or something cool, right? Because it is generating cash improvements. I talked about my $2 billion semiconductor business and an 18% improvement, which we got in 18 months that nobody believed we could, was suddenly generating $360 million a year of additional money. 
you just flow to the bottom line. And that's really good. <laughs> and I talk a lot about this, about on the product delivery aspect, which is time, quality, and cost on that mindset. And there are two great examples that I quote. One is Walmart and how they have been such a dominant force with their obsession with cost. Mm-hmm. And the other is the clothing store, Zara. It's quite amazing how they've gone about actually managing cost. The timing in which we're interviewing this is when Walmart's sort of announcing their investments in cloud and how to essentially like increase their their bottom line and, and build out different services beyond the goods that they sell. Um, so I think that's a really interesting example because when you have this really efficient business and then you start to introduce other business lines, the impact that that has on the overall picture. Um, so as you're starting to share these things, like all of the, the dots are starting to go off in my head about like how this sort of yeah. layers up to the overall strategy. Yeah, and also like, you know, you've got to learn to evolve, right? There's a management exercise where there were basically pairs of people that were asked to pass a basketball between each other. So they would throw the ball rapidly to each other without allowing the ball to fall. So they're all focused on catching the ball and throwing it back. While they were completely engrossed doing this, a person dressed in a gorilla suit runs across the room. And then they ask everyone who was playing this game, how many of you noticed the gorilla? And a very large percentage didn't even notice the gorilla. So when we are engrossed with our work every day and you're fighting fires, a competitor can completely disrupt you by being the gorilla in the room. And I think what Walmart is doing and others are doing is that they are constantly evolving. They're making sure they stay ahead before the gorilla in the room consumes them. That's such a powerful story and I think an incredible preview of another topic that you talk about in your book that I wanted to bring up related to you know being able to identify the gorilla in the room and thinking about competition and strategy. Another challenging area for folks in our community have shared is around sort of understanding and strategically thinking about their role within the company as it relates to engineering, as it relates to, to the business model. And I think you have some very powerful frameworks and principles that you share in your book all about related to understanding the business model and then how to optimize or make choices to become more resilient there. And so related to the gorilla in the room, can you share a little bit more about your perspectives and frameworks around the business model and how to become more resilient in that element? There are two things that I look for in a business model and one related item. So there are really three items. So the first thing I look for in a business model is I ask myself, is it sticky? And what does stickiness mean? It means that in the face of competition, will customers continue to use your products or stay with you as a preferred option versus moving away to the competitor? So That's the first one. And the book contains various examples and attributes, what creates stickiness and how you can create it. It really comes down to your differentiation. And it's the pain for a customer to move away from you. It's their pain, not your pain. (laughs) And so the higher the barrier, the more difficult. The second thing is what I call operating leverage. For every dollar that comes into your top line, which is revenue, how much of it trickles down to the bottom line? Obviously, the more that trickles down to the bottom line, the more efficient is your business. You have low operating leverage and high operating leverage. Low leverage means that incrementally, as you add revenue, your profit does not grow as fast. And in a high operating leverage business, incrementally, every extra bit of revenue, a lot of it flows down to the bottom line. Now, all of this depends on fixed and variable costs, as I explained in the book, but I won't go into that. But think of it, if the bottom line is the output, And the revenue is the input. Output over input is efficiency. All engineers know that. So how efficient is your business? 
And by the way, you don't have to say one, one is better than the other. I wouldn't say that a high operating leverage business is better than a low operating leverage business because a lot of chip businesses, a lot of box businesses, cell phone businesses are low operating leverage, but they're extremely profitable. So it's good. But the important thing is to figure out what are the capabilities that are necessary to manage your operating leverage. So if you're, for example, in a cell phone business, right? The example I give in the book is cell phones. You might have 500 components in the cell phone. You have a very complex supply chain. If you mess up on that supply chain, and let's say you're doing 100 million phones a year, and you have a $2 mistake, that's $200 million. So your ability to manage your costs and basically drive sales is a very important capability in that business. Now, go to the other one, high operating leverage. This is a licensing business. You don't have as much cost. Every extra license you get, like if you license intellectual property, the more royalties you collect, the better it is. It falls to the bottom line because your costs don't proportionately grow with the revenue. But in that business, you need to have the capability to constantly have an attractive intellectual property portfolio to be able to sell and get more customers and keep it evergreen. You also need to be able to close contracts without getting into litigation, because litigation is expensive and you don't close. So these are different capabilities. And the example I give in the book, talking about animals, like I said, gorilla in the room, I talk about lions, leopards, and cheetah. All these cats, their business model is to hunt and to feed themselves. But they all know they have different physical attributes. Cheetah is fast. It can only run after smaller animals but its speed allows it to feed itself. The lion needs a lot of meat because they live in a pride and they have to rely on teamwork and strength. And then the leopard, which doesn't have the size of the lion or the speed of the cheetah, has to rely on stealth. But it has extremely powerful upper body. uh, So it can actually pull its kill up into the trees because if it left it on the ground, hyenas or a lion challenging it, it would have to give it up. So in a way, they're... Entire attributes and physical attributes have evolved to basically feed their business model. The business model perspectives that you just shared to me, like I'm thinking, like you know, how do we, how do we summarize our conversation? And it's like it's so much about being able to adopt the GM mindset and how to align like the choices you make as an organization and your strategy, and to really identify these high leverage areas. And so when you're talking about high leverage, low leverage businesses, the question that really unlocked a lot of thinking for me was, what are the capabilities necessary to manage our operating leverage? And thinking about you know, if you have to make a choice of who do you invest in with people or capabilities that you need to invest in or maintain, to me, that question was really unlocking. What advice do you have for engineering leaders when they're looking at the company's business model? Are there other questions that you would encourage them to ask? Are there other areas you would have them better understand so they could be more effective from this perspective of of a a general manager mindset? You know, it's a two-way street, right? Because you have to have a receptive management and you have to have a receptive engineering workforce. So I believe a lot in creating awareness, right? As a leader, I like to create awareness. I like to basically meet every team regularly in my businesses and talk about the problems we have and ask them to come up with suggestions. And can we work on those, right? And can we translate them into actual goals for the group and to individuals. Because you can't just talk about things. At some point, you have to crystallize it and give it into actualization goals. 
Typically for engineering, I really have two sets of goals. The most important one is delivery accuracy. Can you deliver what you committed you would deliver on time with the right specifications and the right quality? Specification includes cost, obviously. How good are you at delivering to that commitment? And measure it yourself. It should be an honor system. It cannot be forced. The second is, I like an innovation goal. Let's say, what innovation can you do that can either save or generate money for the company? And I like to basically provide that to my teams and have discussions around this to make sure that they feel they are also contributing to running the business. Because it's only then that you get the multiplier effect. I am immediately adopting those two questions in that practice around delivery accuracy and what are you doing to uh, save money or generate revenue. I think those are incredibly powerful, but also empowering for people on your team to feel that, that sense of ownership and authorship within the company. And Sandeep, I know we've we've hardly scratched the surface of, of all of the different principles that you, you talk about in your book. And so just want to give a shout out for anybody who wants to dive deeper and to build a better mastery around business um, and building a more resilient business. Sandeep's book is Your Company is Your Castle, Proven Methods for Building resilient business. Check it out. We have a link in the show notes for that. Sandeep, I know we, we've hardly covered everything here. To me, this is almost, it's been a masterclass in some of the blind spots that I've had with managing different business lines and business units. And so thank you. But to wrap up our conversation, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? <laughs> I don't think I'm ever ready, but I'm a little old guy. <laughs> I'm a little slow on the, on the uptake. So let's try. All right. Uh, what are you reading or listening to right now? Oh, I'm actually reading a tremendous amount on the economy because uh, obviously running a startup, raising money is always tough. And I got to figure out what is happening. Is a recession looming? I look and read about everything. I also build my own models to predict where I think, not only based on sentiment, but on a large number of indices. And I actually write papers to get feedback from experts to say, is my thinking about right to get good feedback? I write a lot every year. I write almost 500 pages approximately every year on different topics. But I normally have a select audience of CEOs and analysts and friends who request the papers from me and I send it to them. It's a private collection and it's not meant for anything other than to share knowledge and to basically get good feedback because that's how you learn, right? I think it's such a great practice to involve your friends in that way. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? You know, I read a lot of management books. I've got many, many fabulous books that has influenced me. But the one that has helped me the most probably is the book called Getting to Yes by Fisher, Yuri, and Patton. There are two interesting concepts in there, which I, I use every day almost. And they basically say, please separate when you're in any discussion or any negotiation, or any interaction, right? Separate people from the problem. Focus on the problem, not on the people. The second thing they say is focus on the interest, not on the positions. These two principles have been very influential in almost every interaction. Have I followed it always? No. But I try every day to keep going back to this anchor and saying, can I do these two things? Because it's so powerful. Incredible practices to leave us with there. Two more quick questions. What is a trend that you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? One of the things in the news that is in mainstream today is artificial intelligence. 
In artificial intelligence, usually we talk about cool things like natural language processing, drug discovery, autonomous cars. But you know, there are some more basic things that I think AI can help a lot. One of the things I'm fascinated about is how artificial intelligence is helping analyze patents. Uh, when you write a patent or an invention, you send it to the patent office and you get these responses from the patent examiner. And you can use artificial intelligence to read the patent and the examiner's comments and bring up all of the relevant material related to that to provide fast office actions. It reduces cost and it's such a structured problem that you can actually get amazing results. So I'm working with one startup company called Claire Volex that has absolutely done some fascinating stuff with these tools. Uh, you can analyze patent claims. You can uh, decide which patents are useful and not useful. So because each patent costs you about $1,000 to maintain each year. So to reduce your cost, don't, don't maintain the ones that are worthless and so on. So I think artificial intelligence is pervading a lot of our lives and on any monotonous task, a machine, which a machine can do better than a human being because it's monotonous. And once you've trained it, that's going to really be a major change in our lives. That's a really exciting example to preview there. AI and its impact on patents. Last question, Cindy, to close off our conversation. Is there a quote or mantra you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Oh, I've got three quotes. This is like almost like a setup question. Thank you. <laughs> I've written about it almost on every podcast I talk about it, but I have three quotes that I live my life by. The first is by Bertrand Russell. It says, conquering fear is the first step to wisdom. And I think that's been very true of everything I've tried. The second is by Lord Thomas Dewar. And he says, the mind is like a parachute. It only functions when open. I haven't always followed that, but it's a powerful and I'm trying to get better at that. The third is Benjamin Disraeli's quote, and it's my life philosophy. Success is a product of unremitting attention to purpose. So true. And thank you. Sandeep, thank you so much for helping introduce us to the principles that you cover in your book and, and sharing some of the frameworks and perspectives that you found to be incredibly impactful throughout uh, your career and all of the, the incredible things that you've done. For me, I'm looking at like the free cash flow topics, the understanding the business model and some of those practices, immediately applying all of those. Again, want to point people, check out the book if you want to go deeper. There's so much more that I wish we could have covered. So I'm like, man, like set, go to the book, check that out. Um, but Sandeep, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patrick. And can I make one last comment? Absolutely. One of the things I wrote the book really was largely from the perspective that many of us who come from an engineering background get promoted because of our technical aptitude. But we lack the broad idea of how a business is run and how we can contribute. So I've written the book from that lens. So I really hope it helps the engineering community and more people with the engineering mindset can benefit from it as they rise in their career. So thank you so much for this opportunity. I truly appreciate it. 